Welcome to the Deep End Beyond Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and experts discuss world-changing ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kosloff. Let's dive in. With the Deep End, we're creating a space where we skip the surface level and go in-depth into ideas that matter. I'll be your guide as we explore possible futures of commerce, higher education, art, governance, longevity, and more with some of the most exciting figures in their respective fields. Joining me in the deep end is Balaji Srinivasan. Balaji started and sold a genomics company, ran one of the most successful massive open online courses of all time, was the CTO of Coinbase, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and correctly predicted the immense impact of COVID at a time when the tech industry was being mocked for, quote, no handshakes policies. Those incredible accomplishments pale in comparison to the vision of the future Balaji lays out for us in the network state. Ranging from talent discovery, widespread human collaboration, the future of decentralized media, and the formation of new countries and cities started by people with the skills and mindset of founders. If Balaji is right, these changes will be led by those who are fundamentally different from the quote inheritors that run legacy businesses or win public office in our system today. It's easy to dismiss big ideas before they have traction. As Balaji says, most ideas don't catch on. The problem of dismissing everything nascent, however, is that you will miss almost every single breakout, from crypto to Uber to COVID, just to name three. The niche becomes the norm. Breakout ideas go from 1% to fully vertical in what can feel like the blink of an eye when combined with the right external conditions. Between the growth of online communities, deepening distrust in institutions, and the decentralization of everything from currencies to journalism, we may be reaching the moment for the network state. The Deep End is produced by OnDeck, where top talent goes to accelerate their ideas and careers. We hope that those who listen to the ideas on the show are inspired to build. To learn more about OnDeck's programs, visit beyonddeck.com. For show notes and additional resources related to The Deep End, check out ideas.beyonddeck.com. All right. Let's dive in. Balaji Srinivasan, welcome to the Deep End. Thanks for joining as our first ever guest. I'm glad to be here. So you've been incredibly prolific lately. A lot of really wide-ranging interviews for a lot of really interesting folks. And what I'd like to do is center in on the work that's really unifying everything that you're talking about. So now that we're going to lay out this framework, I'm looking to really lay out a through line between your thoughts in the early 2010s directly to today. So 2013, let's start there. You mentioned this during your interview with Tim Ferriss, but right after you finished your massive open online course at Stanford, you were really interested in it, the idea of a global talent search. What at that moment was particularly interesting to you and that idea? And can you contextualize that within your Hubble Space Telescope metaphor? Because I thought that was so interesting. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, um, for your for your audience, the Hubble Telescope helped people search for the dark matter, you know, and by analogy, the mobile telescope, that is to say the telescope afforded to us by all these mobile phones helps us find the dark talent, you know? All these people in South America or the Middle East or Eastern Europe or Brazil, Asia, that were essentially overlooked by the 20th century, 
for all the economic development was in basically North America and Western Europe, you know, so-called first world countries, even second world communist countries were held back and third world countries were held way back. Um, and now with mobile, that is dramatically changing. And, uh, you know, why was I thinking about this stuff even in 2013? So, you know, obviously there's stuff, who, people who are thinking about it even earlier than I was, you know, the one laptop per child kind of people and whatnot. Um, but I think it really became feasible around the time that that was no longer theoretical. Once you actually, because people talk about one laptop per child and Nicholas Negroponte and so on was doing that in the mid 2000s. And then it sort of stalled out because netbooks weren't really getting there and people thought it was a failure. And in fact, that's why Intel didn't do mobile. They thought that the iPhone's market would be limited since they had just gone through the one laptop per child thing. This is often a major issue for people. They'll have scar tissue. There'll be a false start or two and they'll think it's not going to work. And then they miss the one that actually goes totally vertical, you know, come. And Kirk, for context, one laptop, you're bringing elementary school memories to me. So the idea was really stripped down laptops that would be able to go to countries in the global South. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And it just basically turned out to be one phone per child. Right. The laptop was just not the right form factor. There's N laptops, but there's 10N or 20N, that number of phones out there now, you know? So the concept had a lot going for it, but it just wasn't going to be a laptop. It was going to be a phone. And so that Android phone, because it combines obviously the phone and the computer and a bunch of other things in one form factor was the thing that got scaled. So once you had that, um, you know, conceptually, you for the first time could truly reach anybody on the planet and you could do something where, you know, people who were in these remote villages who hadn't been touched by the 20th century, who hadn't been brought into the 20th century economy, um, they could be brought into the 21st century economy. So, uh, you know, that to me seemed like the ideal form of internationalist capitalism, like that is to say it's, it's really both doing well and doing good, right? Doing well because you are giving people who were really left out for generations you know, an opportunity, but it's doing good as well because there's an arbitrage opportunity, there's economics there. So it makes sense from that hard-headed economic standpoint, because, you know, these people are worth whatever $100,000 on the open market in terms of their skills, they should be paid that much, but they're making 5,000 or less dollars per year, you know, equivalent. And that's this massive arbitrage opportunity, which you can use to scale a large business, but also to, to help lift these people up. Um, so, so TLDR coming back all the way up to the stack, it was this mobile telescope that meant that we could um, find those people overlooked by the 20th century, fund them and level them up. And here's the question. You referred to this entire talent search as the road, the path not traveled. So you obviously went to A16Z, you went to Coinbase, you did a bunch of different things. Yep. What has happened in this specific moment, 2021? Obviously, we could guess something COVID-related, but what is going on right now in the broader structure that makes the global talent search idea feasible when it wasn't quite there in 2013? Well, you know, when I say the road not travel, basically, I, I had actually gotten the 1729.com domain back in 2013, and that's I would have like taken the MOOC and turned that into something there. And I, who knows? That might have been successful. It might have been something that was like um, Pandora you know, which was an okay company, but then it went vertical when the iPhone came out, right? So they persisted for eight years and, or whatever that period of time was when the iPhone came out, they went vertical, you know? And sometimes that happens where you have the right idea, but the, the door and the idea maze 
opens up later due to some new technology, right? Like Coinbase was a pretty good company. And then 2017, it went totally vertical because Ethereum started working, ICO started working, more than Bitcoin started working and, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and so often that happens where you're kind of directionally right, but then there's an amplifier or multiplier that's put on it that you can't really anticipate in advance, you know? Or, or you can anticipate maybe something like that would happen. You just have to execute for long enough and be persistent enough that you're there when that opportunity knocks. So what has changed? Over the last eight years, uh, I mean, in 2013, I certainly into Bitcoin and Bitcoin was there, but Bitcoin was a billion dollars. Now Bitcoin's a trillion dollars, you know, or, or whatever it is, say half $500 billion, you know, maybe it's down today, but let's just say it's on the order of that, right? So it's up 500X, the crypto space is up 500X. Remote is up at least 10X. I don't know the exact number of people remote working, but it's up 10X, maybe 50X since 2013 because COVID has enabled the remote economy. It's also enabled the crypto economy. It's a digital first economy. We have probably at least a billion more people online. If you include all the people who got online in India with Reliance Geo and in South America and other kinds of places, we have way more results in terms of remote exits, you know, you have Kareem in, you know, Middle East and you have Grab and Gojek in Southeast Asia. Uh, India is now number three in tech unicorns. You have um, energy uh, basically all around the world. Like the concept of the global founder is now a real thing where eight years ago, that was something which I had to argue with people about quite a bit. Everyone's like, you know, well, Silicon Valley is really still just it, you know? And I understand why that is the case, but it was interesting to see folks who live in the future having a degree of what I'd call presentism on that, you know? Um, so to summarize, the remote economy, the crypto economy, the post-COVID economy, I think also the Starlink economy, you know, where basically that is just going to open up the map even further. All kinds of spots on the map that were previously not really feasible to base something out of. Now, you know, some piece of dust in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska or northern Canada or something like that, if it's got good Starlink reception, is now feasible, you know, and you can buy something really cheap and move out to the middle of nowhere and, you know, move out with a bunch of other people and, you know, send in the shipping containers, you know, do you know what main camps are, by the way? No, I don't. Yeah. So oil and gas, essentially, thanks to the whole um, shale oil thing, and actually thanks in part to the whole Middle East thing, um, there's this whole uh, logistics community in the US, oil, gas, military, whatever, that can just set up a so-called main camp very quickly. So generators, porta potties, it's like an instant little city, you know? And that was at first used for the military in like the Middle East. Obviously it's been used for a long time, but it's just gotten better. And then there's domestic demand for shale oil, but you can use that for your startup city or startup town, right? You basically literally buy off the shelf, ship a container type stuff, it's only a shipping container. So you, like Legos, you can send it to a remote location where you've bought land, like a Burning Man type thing. And then you've got your 50 people or 100 people or 300 people who go there and you snap it together. Looking back during the prep for this, your essay, Software is Reorganizing the World, really helped me understand the through lines here that we're trying to get at. So it'd be great for everyone to A, contextualize software is reorganizing the world because obviously that's a play off of Mark Andreessen's software is eating the world essay. So yep. if you could start with what was Mark's essay and then what was your contribution that you were building on with that part? I think that's just really key to setting the foundation here. Totally. So Mark wrote an essay, I think in 2009 called software is eating the world. And I remember reading it. And I thought it was the most obvious thing in the world. 
Um, but basically, but but it wasn't to folks who are outside. Essentially, just being at you know Stanford, being in Silicon Valley at that time, I had uh, even though I was in genomics, which is not really the main state. I wasn't like a web guy, right? I remember reading. I'm like, this is super obvious. Why is anybody even writing this? And and it was something where there was so much resistance to it. People were like, no, nah, Mark, it's, it's crazy. You know, they didn't have the, the, the epithet of tech bro then. Blah, I can't believe he's thinking that, you know, you could just go into telephony and reinvent it. You know, these, these, these software guys aren't just going to walk in and do this. They're not just going to walk in and reinvent hotels or taxis or, you know, th that kind of attitude, right? They're not going to go in and reinvent finance with this fintech and crypto stuff. Um, but we did, and we were doing it, you know, and, and the reason for that is that software and really computer science and statistics is to virtual environments, what physics is to, you know, physics and chemistry are to the physical environment, right? Given how much, how much of your time, for example, do you spend looking at a screen? I mean, I'm like 80% of my day. Yeah. And that's being, uh, and that's me being a little overly generous to myself. Yeah. It, it's like, it's like what, uh, other than when we're working out or when you're going for a walk or something like that, the digital world is now primary and the physical world is now secondary. Yeah. And most of the rest of your life will be spent in the matrix in the sense of most of your waking hours are spent looking at a screen of some kind. It's kind of a crazy way totally. of thinking, right? So what that means is as useful as physics and chemistry are for understanding the physical world and will continue to be so, don't get me wrong, computer science and statistics are critical for understanding the virtual world, the constructed world, right? Because every single space, whether you're dealing with, um, you know, like, like airlines or hotels or, uh, you know, Walmart, like retail, restaurants, anything, um, has A, algorithms, and B, data structures. So it has computer science and it has statistics, right? Okay. So, so that's why software is in the world. You walk into any space, you can write code, and that code has algorithms. And as you run those algorithms, you generate data, which is logged in databases. And so the tools of a software engineer and of a statistician or machine learning person are extremely general. So like just right there, that's you know data structures and algorithms, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you can do that for any, any area. Um, so that was basically Mark's post, software is eating the world, which was super obvious to us and super non-obvious and in fact argued with all these people outside. Not, not so much anymore, but at the time it was definitely argued. And that was the thesis of A16Z is, hey, well, let's fund the software disruptor of every space. This, by the way, was before Uber, it was before Airbnb, it was really before what we'd call fintech, even though PayPal had now existed for eight years before the modern era of fintech. I think it's before Stripe might have been founded, but it was, it was small. I don't remember exactly when it was found. Maybe it was 2010. It was, it was before Bitcoin, you know, was certainly on most people's radars. It might've been just around when Bitcoin was started. Um, it was before like a lot of stuff that we now take for granted is, you know, Twitter and Facebook were not considered important. You know, they were just recreational. They were at Brown, but they were recreational. Uh, Google, this is ahead. why I have to stick up for us East Coasters. Everything you're describing is why this essay didn't make intuitive sense to a lot of people. Right. Um, that's the funny part, which is that all of the examples you're given in hindsight are now obvious, but without those mental models, without those frameworks, that doesn't appear obvious. That's right. And, and you know, the thing about it is I, I, I recognize that because, you know, our neural networks, you know, our, our brain is trained on all the examples we've gotten over our life. You know, and one one thing that um, 
I think about a lot is, and this is sort of the metagame, uh, folks on the East Coast, not not you, actually, I think you're, you're much more outside the matrix than most, um, but in general, folks on the East Coast, they, their sensors only detect something that is at a the scale of a political constituency, right? Ideally, 51%, you know? Um, and if it's way below like 1%, it's just not on their radar. They don't consider it significant. They don't consider it mainstream. They don't think it's going to go anywhere. It's, it's just simply not at the scale that it's meaningful to them. And they feel safe in dismissing it. And to be fair, most things are, are at 0.000 whatever percent of the population remain so, you know? Um, and so you can dismiss most of them. However, you can't dismiss all of them because some of them have these insane growth rates and they start with 10 people and 100 people and then 1,000, then 10,000, 100,000, a million. And that's crypto, that's COVID, that's social, that's search, that's Uber, that's Airbnb, that's all this stuff, right? And so the fundamental thing that East Coast folks don't get is founding and like rapid growth rates and so on because they deal with institutions. And in their world, typically institutions win. Now, the funny thing, the reason I've always found this kind of weird is they've now been seeing a lot of examples where institutions are losing. You know, Kodak lost Instagram and, you know, Ford is taking a beating from Tesla and Uber and Lyft and so on. Why the latter? Because um, when you call an Uber, do you care about the brand of the car? No. Unless it's a black, but I don't, I do not call, I do not call black cars. That's right. But just think about that. That's insane. An entire generation, like you are old enough to remember a generation where car ads and the differentiation of a Mercedes from a Cadillac from a Ford, that was so important through the 20th century, the ownership, the sense of emotion, people cared whether it was a, you know, like a Buick or a Toyota, huge emotional debates by America. And now who cares? That's a parameter. You may not even remember. I don't even remember what car I had because you have 50 different ones, right? It's the same as like Expedia sort of becoming the master brand and de-branding, you know, Expedia or these, effectively even Expedia, there's also Travelocity, whatever there's, this, they themselves are brandless, right? So this brand equity just got completely destroyed, right? So the brand equity of these old car companies that spent so much time just got completely destroyed. Just like all these banks, their brand equity is being destroyed because not just the 2008 crisis, but services like Plaid that just layer on top, right? Or crypto or fintech companies, they're just layers on top. And then you're like, okay, can you just do the commodity thing of sending a wire transfer back and forth? So Bank of America brands a certain way and gold, you know, well, Goldman's not a retail bank, but you know what I mean? Like um, yeah. I don't know, HSBC brands a certain way. And they're really just differentiated now on limits, interest, ability to wire transfer back and forth, licensing, so on and so forth, right? Okay, what's my point? Point is that the East Coast guys just have, uh, you know, as, as I wrote in this recent essay, they've inherited all these institutions they can never build and their entire life is spent, you know, basically thinking that these things are eternal. They've been around since before they were born then they expect they'll be there till after they're born, right? But there's another way of thinking about the world, which is very few institutions that predated the internet will survive the internet. And that's because the internet, you know, as I mentioned, this Ferris pocket, it's like this universal asset. It just breaks things apart and pulls them back. You know, it unbundles and rebundles, right? It shatters things into a thousand pieces. They all go peer to peer, magnetically attract and form different clusters and then rebundle. Go ahead. Well, and this is perfect because that takes us right to your essay. 
and the geographic component of that. One of those things that is getting unbundled within your framework and that you're predicting is Silicon Valley itself. So yes. it's 2013, Silicon Valley isn't just, it's obviously an idea, but it's also not an idea. It's, it's, it's the Bay Area for many people. It's very specific parts of the Bay Area. And contextualize what you were arguing within that context. How was your essay received within the Silicon Valley community specifically, right? So within the people who read Mark's essay and say, okay, yeah, it makes total sense. So forget the East Coast for a second. How did the West Coast folks who are living that respond to your argument? Uh, it was like a standing ovation, basically. Um, so you can actually hear it on the YouTube video. Basically, uh, you know, there's like there's a YouTube video of Silicon Valley's ultimate exit. First, let me explain what that is for the audience, right? So, um, okay, so we just talked about software is uh, eating the world, Mark's essay of 2009. In late 2013, actually, like kind of the first public address that I'd ever given, you know, because uh, yeah, for most of my life, actually, it's you know, I've only been like quote a public figure for the last seven or eight years, I guess, you know, most of my life, I was a, you know, basically a mathematician, statistician, you know, and um, it's something where um, the only reason I've actually could come out of my cave, you know, so to speak, uh, is because there were changes that we need to affect by arguing with people that you can't affect by simply doing math in your cave. You know, if if I felt that society was well organized enough that the primary thing they needed was for me to go and do equations and not bother anybody, and that was actually my mental model of the world for a long time. You know, like okay, you just need me to do more complicated integrals, uh, figure out how to you know approximate conditional distributions and high dimensions or, or that kind of stuff, right? Uh, I could go and do that. That's what society needs to go and do that. But I realized in my late 20s and early 30s that actually technology was only part of the prerequisite. You actually needed to unblock regulations in order to unblock a lot of health stuff. I didn't understand the extent to which the FDA in particular and the regulatory state in general were the primary obstacle to innovation in the physical world. You know, and I sort of come to this conclusion through my own personal experience, but then Thiel and Cohen have also written about the great stagnation. And if you notice, and here's a very important thing that shifted over the last 10 years, 10 years ago, it was much more taboo to actually talk about regulation as being bad. Today, it's totally, uh, it's hard for me to communicate that, by the way, but it was kind of like, what, you want everybody to be poisoned? Instant reaction for people. You know? it, it's not a libertarian crank thing yes. today. Is that, the way to think about it. That's right. That's right. This is something where the Overton window has shifted in a positively libertarian direction, just as other things, like obviously a lot of the race or gender stuff has shifted in a very different direction, right? This is something where um, regulation or um, Ron Paul type stuff, like Ron Paul was considered like kind of crazy. I didn't even understand what he was saying, actually, in the 2000s at first, when he was talking about end the Fed and so on. I was just like, but like when I say I didn't understand, it's not like I thought he was, he was a crank, but I just didn't actually have a frame of reference. Why in the Fed, right? What's the problem with the Fed? Then the financial crisis. It's like, oh, okay. Now I understand what he's saying, you know? And this is something just to digress for a second. One thing I have to constantly remind myself of is some people die and some people are born every year. And the frame of reference, you know, that you and I have, right? Like, so you're 30 something. 
right? Are you 29? I'm 29. 29. Okay, fine. So you were a kid when 9-11 happened. And I was like 21 when 9-11 happened, you know? So you remember 9-11, but you remember it a different way than I remember it, you know? And enough, enough. you remember enough, right? But now there's kids who don't have any memory of that, right? And then when I was growing up, like something that people would often talk about, they talked about Vietnam in the 80s and 90s, right? Because it was only 20 years ago, right? They talked about Vietnam in the way that we would talk about 9-11, which is less today, right? It's already kind of dropping off, you know? And you realize that it's, there's not just an Overton window of what political topics people discuss, but there's a memory window where you take each person and you take their life and you take the events that happened and references to certain events just start dropping off because they're moving out of living memory, you know? And in order for people to reference them, they need to actually be in educational textbooks or they need to be in news media or television or something like that because they're outside of living memory. This also means that those media outlets have enormous power to shape what people thought of those events or don't think of it. Like for example, the Spanish flu was not in living memory and it was not really the subject. I mean, there were a few books on it, but it, most people weren't even aware that it had happened. There weren't cultural products. There wasn't There wasn't nothing to tie it to it. Yeah, that's right. Now, you go from it, World War I to the, gate, to the Great Gatsby. Yeah, that's right. It, it wasn't like, you know, if you ask your relatively uneducated, you know, American, what is history, right? They will say, okay, well, there was, uh, you know, um, maybe they'll say the Cold War, but they'll say 1945 and they'll say 1865 and they'll say 1776, right? It's basically World War II, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War. Those are the three things that they would remember, right? Sort of a potted history, you know what I mean? And there's lots of jumps that happen. There are lots of things that are alighted, pieces that are just not considered includes important enough to make the highlight reel, you know, of the, of the you know, kind of thing, right? And um, when we're talking to these, uh, these kids today, you have to remember that there's folks who are coming online who don't have the same memory of events that we do. They're coming in cold. And, you know, and the Fed, I didn't understand what Ron Paul was saying, but now with the financial crisis, uh, or after the financial crisis, I got much more into it um, and went into the abstractions, figured out, I'm like, okay. But, it, but even what he was saying though, by the way, and the Fed wasn't exactly right. It was directionally accurate, but it wasn't exactly right. You know why? I guess probably because it was within the existing system. I don't know. Because the thing is that when you say end the Fed, the Fed is at the center. It's the hub at the center of this giant system. Millions of spokes rely on this thing, right? It's like saying end windows. You can't just end windows. You crash a million. People may say windows sucks, but you'd crash whatever 100 million computers around the world. But what you can do, what is legitimate to do, what is realistic and pragmatic to do, what is actually scary to the establishment to do is exit windows, exit the Fed, exit the F FDA, build a parallel institution, right? And so, so essentially it was this thought process, now I'm bringing it back full circle, right? There's this thought process that in the early 2010s, I was starting to articulate and I was like, okay, Really, what we need to do, what has been successful in software, what has been successful is not the sort of silliness of accepting the establishment, nor the um, non-pragmatic silliness of just saying, end it, right, without, you know, but the pragmatic and therefore bold and determined and slightly scary, but also exciting and important project of 
replacing it with an alternative that builds itself up for nothing and is actually superior on enough respects that it pulls the support away from that institution towards this one. So rather than try to replace it wholesale in one go, a million, a billion voluntary decisions, eyes shift from here to here as you get new proof points, as you build new features, as you solve problems, as you overcome PR issues, as you surmount attempts to ban or prohibit, as you, you know, essentially transcend, right? Those pointers shift from the legacy to this one until you have enough strength and you are actually the replacement, the genuine alternative. And now, Obviously, that path will differ from institution to institution, but the mm -hmm. concept of exit, of building parallel institutions, it was clear to me that that was actually the way to reform. And moreover, that the internet permitted this because it's like a dynamic geography, okay? What I mean by that is um, physical geography is not that plastic. I cannot move around piece of earth, make them rise up and connect to each other in different ways. I can't go like this and make this building float in the air and connect to something else. But digital geography is plastic like that. That's what a peer-to-peer -peer network is. We don't usually think of it this way, but the distance between you know, me and somebody in physical space is fixed by you know, physics, right? The distance between me and somebody in a virtual space is the geodesic rather than geographical distance. And so I can hit a button and have proximal neighbors that are just totally different than they were 10 seconds ago. We can rewire the geography of this digital world. And so what that means is once you have something that's actually working like a new hub, it can attract pointers very, very, very quickly like this. We don't actually see that process because we don't have really good VR or AR yet. But one way of thinking about it, um, for example, have you looked over like a panorama of New York City or something like that recently? Yeah, of course. Okay. Outside your window, right? Um, actually, you might show a panorama. You might pause you know, here and show a panorama, right? One that just shows hundreds or thousands of windows, like one of those cool kind of panoramic shots. Okay. And here's a question. Just visualize that and ask yourself, how many of those windows, if you lit them up, would have a user who had used Facebook in the last month or was a, as a Facebook user? I mean, almost all of them. All especially of if Facebook is especially if Facebook is extended to mean Instagram too. Yes, that's right. So let me let's say Google, let's say or let's say Facebook plus its properties, Instagram, WhatsApp, you know, whatever, right? So so all of them, right? And when you say all of them, you're like, wait a second, what if the Facebook flag appeared in every single one of those windows? Okay. And what if during the rise of Facebook, the flags had unfurled outside the window to show that that territory was being claimed? Okay, just like you know, people will unfurl flags when they're supporting a soccer team or something like that. That's not considered to be threatening or whatever in any way, right? But the rise of these tech companies happened in part because they were invisible. If you could actually visualize that, everyone would be like, holy cow, this thing is getting really powerful, really fast. It would have been very visible, right? And um, so that's a really interesting way of thinking about it, you know, that like literally this digital entity was taking territory like this, like New York City in, in a year, maybe a few months, yeah. went from nothing to Facebook flags everywhere, you know? But it's invisible because you can only see it in the digital realm. You know, and now as we move into kind of this, the 2020s and 2030s, it will be invisible, not simply because in the digital realm, but because people will encrypt it and they won't display it. They will be pseudonymous. They're not going to just show their affiliation to somebody who, go ahead. Well, yeah. And what's, what is the, cause it actually is, this is actually a useful um, 
pivot because I, I love this tweet you had because it was it's very simple. Two um, thousands tech companies. Yes. So the Facebook conversation we just had. 2010s cryptocurrencies, 2020 startup cities, 2030s the aforementioned network state. Yes. In the 2020s, then, what is the equivalent of that Facebook that is pseudonymous or something like that? Great question. Um, and then let me come back to the software engineering as a little thing and just kind of give a give a coherent you know rundown of it. Um, so tech companies, crypto protocols, startup cities, network states. I think that just sort of ascends the the ambition level, you know what I mean? And um, in this decade, I think the thing that is the crypto of 2021, I mean, obviously our crypto is important. Crypto is going to keep working and so on, right? But the physical manifestation of crypto, the thing that is crypto after crypto are startup cities like Prospera, like Cul-de-Sac, like Starbase Texas, like all these other kinds of things, different forms of startup cities. And there's different, you know, as I mentioned, there's three different ways you can think of a startup city. It could be a city where startups happen, which is what San Francisco used to be, but now it's all priced out and crimed out. It's over. Um, it can be a city that acts like a startup, which is Miami, for example, now, you know, or some of the other cities that have laser-eyed mayors who are actually trying to bring crypto people, tech people there, right? Super cheap, by the way, literally some tweets, you know, Suarez, like he puts out a thousand tweets to attract a billion dollar tech company. It's like, one tweet per million dollars in equity brought to the city. It's, it's most- Not bad. <laughs> not bad, right? It's like the cheapest economic development engine you could have simply by just rolling out the welcoming wagon and saying, hey, you know, like we're not going to call you tech bro. We're going to call you engineer, computer scientist, financier. We're going to call you someone who's contributing to the city and figure out a positive some way that the newcomers and the existing, you know, people can work together, which is basically immigrants and and, and existing folks, you know? Um and the third definition of a startup city is not just a city where startups happen, nor a city where which acts like a startup, but a city that is a startup itself that has a cap table, you know, that is basically done on bare land, that is selling things to customers, and so it's sort of like a large real estate development, but more ambitious than that, you know. So cul-de-sac.com is like that, right? Prospera.hn is like that, which Scott Alexander wrote a review of. Um, I'm an investor in Pronomos.vc, which is investing in these things, and this is something that I think about a great deal. There's also things like this happening in Africa. There's like gift city in India. Um, the, the stuff is happening interestingly, and this is also I think an important lens on the world right now, is at what I'm bullish on is the subnational, the international and the technological, right? Subnational meaning Miami, Texas, Austin, Colorado, you know, stuff like that, maybe Ohio, things like that. Wyoming. Um, Wyoming, yes, absolutely, absolutely, yep. Uh, with their crypto stuff. Uh, international is like Estonia, Singapore, even Israel, you know, given like, obviously there's current stuff going on there, but I'm, I'm bullish on them as, you know, survivors and, and, and so on. Um, unit 8600, they're good at software, other things. And then technological is Bitcoin, Ethereum, things like that. Then maybe also you might go and you could call about supranational, like, um, you know, maybe a revival of Christianity, Judaism, et cetera, like religious Passover this year was way bigger. Religious Easter was way bigger than I remember it being. People consciously sort of signaling on that on, on Twitter. Um, and uh, and that feels like something that people will sort of go back to that as a way to sort of signal against where uh, what, what, I'm, what I'm bearish on, or rather what I would put much less energy into because I feel it's got momentum of its own and it's hard to intercept it, are the US, the EU, and the PRC, right? So those entities... 
Um, you know, like I think the UK is interesting. I don't think the EU is interesting. I think France or, you know, Hungary or Germany, they're starting to set their own course independent of the EU. And in the same way that Miami and Austin and Wyoming are starting to set their own course independent of the USA, right? And those sheer tensions, I think, are going to like increase over the 2020s. Um, and it's really just an extension of sanctuary cities and, you know, like marijuana laws being different and the concept of federalism and so on and so forth, um, but to an even greater extent, right? Do you remember during COVID for a while, there were the interstate compacts? Yeah. So there was the Western state one. I think there was, I don't know what the other, but yeah, there's, there's like a few of these. There were several of them. That's right. So basically there's a Western seas compact, which if I recall was California, Oregon and Washington, there was like the Michigan area one, there's like the Northeast one and so on. And I believe that's actually a constitutional mechanism, but think about what was happening there. That was a stress test of the system where essentially governors were like, look, the federal government doesn't have together. We are going to work together. Um, and we're just going to do things on our own, right? Now, in many ways, I think uh, just like 2008 was a preview for 2020, you know, like things that were totally, oh my God, I can't believe that's happening, became routine. Same, like, same with 2001, right? 2001, oh my God, I can't believe we're doing all the surveillance, the Patriot Act stuff, the searches, et cetera. Then all that became routine, right? And now like you have NSA surveillance and you have to take off your shoes all the time when you go to the airport and basically the fourth amendment has been stealth repealed and, and so on and so forth, right? Same with 2008, like the bailouts were like this incredible, unprecedented thing. Oh my God, 787 billion, this is insane. We're all, all this discussion about moral hazard, but they rammed and jammed it through. And now we don't even know how many trillions of dollars have been printed, you know? Um, like literally bailouts became from, a, from, a, from an aberrant thing into like a tool of the system, you know, something that they can hit a button. Like what was, was an exception becomes a rule, you know? And I think the stuff that happened in the 2020s Everything from lockdown to uh, like these interstate compacts forming where like the US quasi breaks up to printing giant amounts of money to people being at home and being sort of forced to be online all the time to like the commons being a tragedy with fires and shootings and crazy people running around. I think all of that is a preview for what's going to come, unfortunately. Wow. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the part where I'm like, wow. Okay. So. This is the key question then, and I'm really curious about the Miami example you're talking about because obviously Mayor Suarez is really innovative at a pure performance level, but there have been a variety of cities, countries, et cetera, who've wanted to own the startup space, right? So that's why you have Silicon Alley in New York, Silicon Hills in Austin, I'm from Oregon, so Silicon Forest. There was a version of this in Russia, Korea, all over the world. What is it that happened with Miami that within your framework makes it a really unique case study? Well, so um, there are several things that happened in 2020 that have basically made, so, so I wrote this article, Software's Reorganizing the World in 2013. And I think if you go back and reread it, I think it holds up really well. Um, into, you know, I don't know, have you, did you reread it? Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. And this, this, this is my point about how I think that once again, obviously, like huge kudos to you on the early COVID stuff, but I think that that's not a framework. Software is reorganizing the world is actually a framework that I can apply to the show, to these conversations that anyone who's listening can really do there. And I think that's the really important part about it. Okay, so let me discuss that. Let me go to Miami, right? So in 2013, I gave 
this talk, Silicon Valley's ultimate exit, where generalizing the concept of, you know, and the Fed or in the FDA is basically, you can't just end them, you have to exit them and you have to actually build a better alternative and you have to work your way up. And it's not simply about gaining political power and flipping a switch, it's about solving the thousand practical difficulties because often those systems, though flawed, have some logic to them, right? Like people do want, um, you know, for example, some regulation of biomedical products. It is just that the current regulator doesn't make the right type one and type two trade-offs. You know, that is to say so this they, is the FDA then. This FDA, that's right. The, with the Fed, it's not like they don't want a monetary policy of some kind. They may want a Bitcoin style monetary policy that's fixed, or they might want uh, a corporate monetary policy, you know, or they might want an Ethereum style monetary policy where the supply decreases, but they want a choice of it, right? So it's not that they don't want regulation, they don't want monetary policy, but they just don't necessarily want a monopoly over it. But that means you have to build a better version. Okay, so I gave this talk, Silicon Valley's Ultimate Exit, which talked about this and talked about how software and the internet could build these alternatives and how over the next 10 years, there's going to be a backlash against Silicon Valley and that we needed to actually exit um, because the state's fist was going to come down on this. Now, this was basically pre-tech lash. It was pre a bunch of this stuff. I think pretty much everything in that talk held up. I was attacked for it at the time by all the East Coast folks. Uh, all, all those folks now work for Salzburger. It's hilarious, actually. Um, there's so the New York Times. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you know, I was attacked by all these you know sort of conventional wisdom kind of people for essentially calling out what it was they were about to do. You know, so that is to say, like they were about to try to delegitimize it, but this is sort of an early attempted cancellation. You know, where the goal was to kind of shoot down the guy who was trying to raise alarm around this. I didn't have the distribution yet at the time to put it out there, but enough folks in tech were like, "Wow, this is awesome!" That I had a lot of support within tech, and I said you could hear like the the applause and so on at that moment. If you go back and watch the video, then I wrote a follow up piece to it, which kind of explained what I meant in more detail. And fundamentally, what I was meaning was that, you know, Quick the pause biology, ahead, because yeah. this is something that has to be noted. This follow up is published in Wired. Yes. You doing that, that is the most like the world has changed since 2013 in the sense that and this isn't a dunk on Wired. I actually like Wired a lot um, as a tech publication. It's more that Today, this would be a Substack post, or this would be your own specific thing. So that's just dynamic. You gain the you needing the legitimacy of a traditional publication was a very 2013 thing, and I th I'm just that dynamic change just really fascinates me. Yeah, because I so, don't see you as someone who's as interested in that part of it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, the thing is, the big shift is pre 2013. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, and you might be able to play that old clip. Tech and media were were okay. You know, like, or rather, you know, the brief history, it was 95, 2008, um, tech and media basically, I shouldn't say ignored each other. They had a friendly relationship. Media thought tech was over after the dot-com crisis focused on the Iraq war. Tech thought media wasn't profitable after Yahoo and AOL and focused on user-generated content and Google and Dropbox and YouTube and so on. And then from 08 to 2012, tech suddenly started taking all of media's ad revenue and media was, was you know, getting crushed. And then after 2012, the tech clash began because media was like, okay, now that Obama's elected, tech is no longer just a part of the coalition. They're not just with unions and LGBT and so on. They're coming for all the marbles and these guys are getting too big for their britches. So let's beat them up. 
And it, what was it quite that conscious? I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if for some people it was extremely conscious, just like, you know, one person writes a code and a billion people execute it. There's a few people who come up with narratives and then they kind of spread and people are sort of repeating them just like a, you know, in any movie, for example, you know, I always laugh when people are like, Oh, biology, why do you care about so much? It's just a movie. And I'm like, do you know how many times I reshot that scene? How many historical allusions went into that scene? You know, like, like the, the, the costume designer went and got like a specific piece of fabric just to give that particular emotion. Those are all like very, 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 you know, like thought through things. It's not just a movie. It, just the fact that you experience it casually doesn't mean that the producer produced it casually. You know, it's very hard to make something easy, hard to make something entertaining. Anyway, so those narratives, the post 23rd narratives of the tech lash were going out there, but they hadn't yet dominated everything yet. They were quickly growing and I could see they were growing and that's why I wanted to put it out there. But I wasn't even on Twitter, by the way, at the time that that, that post came out. That was pre-Twitter. I, I actually, to, you know, to criticize myself, I didn't actually even understand the power of social media for a long time because I had thought that it was just like people tweeting their breakfast, you know, or narcissists posting photos of themselves online, which I didn't really care about. I mean, whatever, you know, go ahead and do that. But, you know. 90210 type stuff had never interested me. You know, I was interested in math and technology and so on. And it was only, you know, when I was able to like attend a conference remotely and read somebody's summary of like a genomic conferences, you know, things. And it was like a 50 tweet thread before we call a tweet storm where I could drink in an entire conference in five minutes from my laptop. I was like, wow, that saved me a plane ticket. It was much more detailed. This is not a breakfast tweet. (laughs) It's not a breakfast tweet. That's right. It was only at that point that I started actually understanding the power of it. Anyway, so in late 2013, the the tectonic plates hadn't fully shifted. What are the big changes versus now and then? So number one is, I think you're, I don't say a fool, but I think you're foolish if the behavior as opposed to the person. I think you're foolish if you go and do, if you're in tech and you do anything with legacy media at all, that's just, it's, it's like building on Oracle or something. It's like uh, Lucy and the football. You're going to get rug pulled, right? Even if they're friendly today, they're going to rug pull you. Basically, if you acquire your viewers, your customers through a hostile channel, then they can man in the middle of you and just write a lot of negative stuff and then kill you to that audience, right? It's literally like building on top of Facebook. You know, building on top of legacy media is like building on top of social media. I respect Zuck as a CEO, but I never build an app on top of Facebook because they'll just kill you on the Facebook API if you get successful enough, right? Similarly, doing anything- RIP Farmville. RIP Farmville, exactly. RIP Farmville or Twitter's API, Meerkat, right? You know, these are companies, these are corporations. You build on top of the Twitter API, Meerkat, the thousand other things, TweetDeck, et cetera, and it'll just monopoly you with their distributional access, right? Now, everybody understands this in the context of a social media company because it's explicitly a corporation that's a for-profit thing, but the exact same analogy applies to a legacy media company, which has access to the distribution list of its viewers and you do not, right? So, the rug pull is guaranteed over there. The only difference is they're just less honest about it. You know, the social media company is just like, yeah, your API key work now it doesn't. We just turn this off. It's more explicit, right? Whereas here, it's just that there's a subtle shading of adjectives until suddenly the guy who they'd allow to write becomes the bad guy, the demon, et cetera, et cetera, right? So not conceding to that at all from the beginning and just building your own distribution channels is the approach to go in 2021. And part of the reason is that over the last seven or eight years, Tech has built gigantic followings on social media. 
right? We like, you know, individual founders have more distribution than many writers or what have you. And there's absolutely no reason to be intermediated by some legacy publication. We're still intermediated by twitter.com, that's true, but now with BitCloud and with you know Mirror and with Substack and with Clubhouse and with Ghost, um, we're, we're less so even then, you know? And, and that means also Twitter, by the way, can't deplatform as easily because it's got competition. And also Jack, to his credit, after you know the deplatforming of Trump has now started to tack back towards you know, where I think his heart truly is, which is, blue sky and being a protocol and not having to make these decisions. I don't envy him, by the way. He's basically like the president of like a 300 million person thing. And there's decisions that you can't see what's happening in the room and how many pressures are being put, guns to his head and so on and so forth. But I think where he really wants to come down is let people fight it out in terms of the quote battle of ideas. So he doesn't have to make that decision. That's actually what he said to Congress. Okay. So what's changed since 2013? Number one, you know, it's like just open warfare between media corporations and tech companies. But number two is something interesting, which is I would not even identify what we're doing as Silicon Valley anymore. First, it's no longer a geographical thing. The, Miami is more Silicon Valley than Silicon Valley, right? But more fundamentally, I think the real thing is no longer geographic. You could call it decentralized versus centralized or crypto versus fiat. Now, what's funny is these two points of view, let's call it the you know, uh, left libertarian and crypto libertarian or whatever points of view have now very much converged, right? Where a huge second big difference since 2013 is anybody who's in crypto or in decentralized tech no longer trusts centralized tech companies, right? Like you don't think of them as being the same. And anybody who's in decentralized media doesn't trust centralized media companies. That's a new thing, right? So decentralized media includes defectors from centralized media and decentralized tech in crypto includes the defectors from centralized tech. Like there's a huge gulf today between the 100,000th employee of Apple and the founder, the CEO, the VC and the angel. That's like a 50 point gap in terms of attitude. As big as the gap in terms of, you know, like the substacker versus the, you know, media corporation, you know, employee, right? Um, and I feel that decentralized will win in the end because we have better tech and we have better writers, even though we have less distribution today. This is the thing I bet on over a 10 year window. So this is interesting because the theme that's undergirding all this is this constant, another way of referring to centralization is like a bundle. Like it's, 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 you know, there's a, there's a bundle of things. There's a bundle of features in Silicon Valley. There's a bundle of features at the New York times. Um, you have people leaving, exiting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To what end are the decentralizing forces moving? Because this is why the network stake is an interesting idea to me, because your point isn't that everyone just goes and does their own thing. I think this is a good time to ask you to yes. define what technological progressivism is. Yes. Because at least in your context, I think that's what you're moving to. And we will, audience, get to really defining the network state. But I think that that's a really important addendum to add to this because this isn't purely just this random libertarian thing. Yeah. There's I wouldn't, a I wouldn't even call myself to it. That's right. I wouldn't even call yeah. myself a libertarian. And the reason is, I'd say, um, you know, the very briefly, you know, the uh, conservative thinks that government can be fixed. The political progressive uh, thinks that government is just fine. Uh, or, or actually, it's like um, the political progressive says more government. The conservative says less government. The libertarian says no government. And the technologist or technological progressive says new government. 
and new is exit, right? Because the thing is, in some dimensions, you might want more, more of the state, more state involvement, and others less. But these are all like slider settings. And, you know, having- Wait, an- Why is new exit? Because, because, and this is where like, sure. maybe this is me sticking with 20th century metaphors. I hear exit, and I also imagine someone moving to a cabin and just- going out by themselves. That isn't actually creating something new, right? So can you clarify that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's collective exit, right? So it's not the sovereign individual alone, but it's a sovereign collective. So the founder doesn't just move to the cabin, they whistle for backup and they bring their friends there and they turn that cabin into a little settlement and then a town and then a city and then a bigger thing until it outshines the city they left. So is this the... I'm trying to put your essays in the right order, but is this basically the network union stage? Yeah, yeah. So, right. And, you know, the thing is, um, as I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking off the cuff, and that's actually part of the point of the book is to kind of organize these concepts in an A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? But, you know, the first is basically that the internet allows these voluntary associations, this dynamic geography, where I'm fixed in terms of who's 30 yards away from me. I'm very dynamic in terms of who's in my social network or whatever. So I can just push, push, you know, iterate on that constantly. And then once it works, acquire tons and tons of nodes next to this new hub that I've just set up, right? So I set up a hub that is, or I set up an alternative hub and exit relative to the current system. And if it works well, it's magnetic and it draws in all of these other nodes that then connect to it, right? And it becomes grows and grows until it pulls enough away from the existing system that it's bigger and more important than the existing system, right? And every single individual action there was opt-in. It was consensual. It was legitimate. It was volitional. It was voluntary, right? It was the opposite of the cores of state, right? It's the voluntary network. And so that framework is something where you found that alternative and you acquire those existing pointers, those existing nodes volitionally. And you can, of course, apply that to companies. Now with crypto, you can apply that to public goods, right? So you can apply that to currencies, but you can also apply it to data sets like OpenStreetMaps, for example, or Wikipedia. There's probably going to be crypto versions of these. Uh, but you can also even apply it to things like statistics, like the stats that a government puts out, you know, inflation stats, for example, or something that's going to be put on chain or the price signals that Bloomberg or whatever puts out, like the price tickers, those are going on chain. Basically, crypto is a way to build public goods. And so it expands the scope of what you can build from a computer. Startup cities expand it even further. An influencer online builds a community that essentially get, has a sense of purpose and um, will crowdfund territory and then actually move there, right? Just like the communes of the 1800s in the US, you know, the Oneida commune or, or what have you, these were volitional things that when the map was opened up, they could go and move there. And with Starlink and with remote, the map is reopened again. You know, you can actually, so like these bare pieces of land that people just didn't settle for reasons of centralization over the course of the 20th century, it's a big country. It's a big world. There's lots of these places that are cheap that you can go for freedom. You might have to live in the cold. You might have to live in the desert like Burning Man, but you're free and that might be worth it. And then you bring in, you pay the extra cost of dealing with that, but you get the huge benefit of freedom, right? So that's the startup cities thing of the, of the 2020s. And then eventually we get to network states and upstream both kind of startup cities and network states is something I call the network union. What's a network union? So I've got a post at 17 on this. Basically, it is a social network that has um, a definite leader, a tree-like structure, an integrated blockchain, and a daily call to action, right? So when you go and you look at Hacker News, or you look at Reddit, or you look at Twitter, and you look at it with fresh eyes, 
Um, and if I just take like a, you know, a screenshot of what's on Hacker News, right? You see 30 links there. What do those links have in common? Upvoted, downvoted, something like that? Yeah, they are upvoted, downvoted, but I would argue almost nothing in the sense of it's basically like just a bag of candies on screen. You know, it's entropy. Your feed and Twitter, it's just like, this is new and this is unconnected to that. Sometimes there's a bunch of tweets on the same topic and something's going really big, right? But for the most part, it's just like random, 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 right? And random is interesting to humans. There's, there's a value to random. There's serendipity. You know, there's, you know, oh, that was cool. That was a random meeting. But we're over-indexed on random, right? We like random more than we should because it's surprising, it's novel, but novel is not necessarily useful. Novel basically is different. And when, unless you have an extremely good memory, seeing 5,000 links means that you've just started 5,000 things and not finished any of them. You know what I mean? You have breadth, yes. but not depth, you know? And something that's a useful thing to do, by the way, is make a pie chart of how you're spending your time and how you want to spend your time, right? Do you, you know, how you're spending your time reading a thousand different links, how you want to spend your time. I want to learn Chinese, right? I want to go ahead. No, I, this just brings back you saying what percentage of your time is spent in form of a screen. The second part of that is how efficient yeah. or directed is that time. And the honest answer is it's a disaster. At least for me, it's a disaster. Yes. Um, and the randomness is a good way of thinking about it. I remember one of the other episodes you were describing how a cost of the way that pre-crypto social media was organized was it didn't index at all for, I don't want to say efficiency was the word used, but something a little more effective than the randomness we're discussing right now. That's right. That's exactly right. And so I think that um, going from randomness to direction, going from entropy to work, you know, where there's like a direction heading, um, 10 or 100 really determined people can pull something more in a particular direction than a million, you know, like free-floating entropic things, right? That's what a startup is. It can literally shift the world because it's these smart people just pulling in one direction. And so we haven't even begun, in my view, to actually use the internet for work. Like, like genuine, so, okay, I should say, like the full scale of what it can do, I don't think people are recognizing yet. Um, because what crypto lets you do is it lets you coordinate people on a scale that's much larger than a company. Let's you coordinate people. Wait, could you make yeah. this practical? Could you make this practical for a second? Because I think everyone, because you, I liked how you started with the hacker news and the Twitter and right. the Reddit example. That's entropy. Could you just better, not better articulate, sure. articulating. Let right. me give you an example. Can you just give an example directionally of sure. what the directed version looks like? Sure. Okay. So first, just to give some examples of collaborative work on the internet. Um, so you've seen, I don't know, two or three people edit a Google doc at the same time, right? You've sometimes seen like a Wikipedia page build out after a tragedy where a bunch of people start crowdsource stuff, right? Um, that, that can happen very fast with a news event. Uh, there's also something called the polymath project a while back where um, somebody posed an open math problem and everybody tried in the comments to solve it. And it was interesting that it actually worked. Basically, it's not obvious that it would work, but a bunch of mathematicians were able to sort of build on each other's comments to solve some open problems. This was like almost 10 years ago now, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, for a long time, I have thought about, okay, can we increase the number of people collaborating at the same time? Because the issue is that 
you know, there's a limit to that degree of collaboration. There's, there's a lot of shared context that has to be had. You know, maybe two or three people can edit a Google Doc at the same time. But if you have a thousand people, someone's going to be pasting in garbage or, you know, everyone's like the division deleting. of labor. <laughs> deleting, exactly. It'll hang, all this type of stuff. If you have a spreadsheet like that, you know, someone's going to mess it up. You know, the cursor is going to be in the wrong place. Someone will insert, right? So the workflows don't yet exist to point a thousand people at something to do something useful. When you point a thousand people at something, what can they do? They can upvote something. They can RT it. They can mob somebody and, and leave destructive comments. They can downvote somebody and destroy their books, reviews on Amazon or something. But for the most part, it's sort of negative energy. It's a social media mob, right? What does like, you know, the opposite of that look like? What if, what if all that energy was not just destroying and downvoting because like it's lower skill, right? To yell at somebody takes no skill. You don't need, a thousand people don't need to coordinate. They can all just yell crap at somebody, right? Whereas to build something up, I'm doing X, you're doing Y, you're doing Z. There's division of labor. It's much harder, right? Now, crypto gives something that's low skill that you can do that's not just yelling at somebody or RTing them, but it's like funding them, right? So that actually starts to build something. That's something where you can have a thousand people collaborate and each give a dollar and that builds something up. That's actually more possible now with crypto, right? Mm -hmm. Where things start to get interesting is, can we use some of the same concepts behind crypto where there's like incentives for doing small things, where there's permissions um, to, to have people do something where like, does it cool snapping to their digital house in a day, right? Could you, is it, a, is it a website? What kind of digitally useful product can people crowdsource in a day, right? I'll give you an example, right? Yeah. Um, let's say, uh, so this is a concept I've talked about with Simply Trend, the crypto credential, right? Let's say that you have in your Bitcoin or rather your Ethereum wallet, not just which cryptocurrencies you hold, but little credentials like NFTs denoting what skills you have, okay? So I know rocket science, I've solved a hundred rocket science problems, um, you know, like, and, and those were proctored when I solved them. So you know that I've solved hundred rocket science problems and I can prove that on chain. Let's say there's 30,000 of these people, okay? Now, what Elon Musk could do is he could post a tweet with an open rocket science problem and restrict the replies, not just to people who followed him, but to all the people who have the rocket science credentials. So he filters it and the people who actually understand the physics of that situation. And so the, the quality suddenly rapidly rises. It's like the polymath project that I, that I mentioned, right? You don't have to pre-curate that audience. You can have the gate being the crypto credential where only those people with that credential can log in and start doing work instantly. And you can give the crypto back to them. Go ahead. What's going back to the story that we're telling here, there are technological, technological developments that make everyone, every piece of it possible, right? So the mobile phone, as opposed to a stripped down laptop, um, consumer internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is everything you're describing, is this happening on Twitter or does something new have to be built? Oh yeah, I, I think something new has to be built. I mean, look, I, I respect Jack a lot. I think he's, I think Twitter and Facebook are the two existing tech companies I'm the most bullish on in some ways because they're still founder run. I'm actually mm -hmm. pretty bearish on Google and even Apple, Amazon when Bezos steps down, you know, like Microsoft, Microsoft stuff is doing a good job. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I'm relatively bearish on the other four versus Facebook and Twitter um, because they're not, the, the, the other ones aren't founder run. 
Jack, it's no coincidence, I think, that Jack and Zuck in different ways are the most pro-crypto of those. And, you know, Twitter is small relative to those big five, you know what I mean? But it's very influential relative to its size, you know? Um, so much respect to Jack, much respect to actually the innovation they've done over the last six months. It's been insane, like spaces and so on. They probably were pinned down by a lot of, you know, social, like political controversy and so on for the last four years. They're probably a thousand, you know, support requests. Now they're getting their head above water. So they're starting to ship product. But I do believe that decentralized social networks, the decentralized Twitter will be worth at least 10x Twitter. Just like decentralized gold will be worth 10x gold, decentralized, you know, uh, Stripe is a wonderful company, don't get me wrong, but like decentralized versions of all existing fintech companies will be worth 10x what the equity version is worth. The reason for that is when you, when you build on those protocols, um, you have property rights. And so you can invest way more. I mean, put it like this. Have you ever registered a domain name? Uh, yes, once. Okay, fine. So uh, if you could only rent that domain name, would you go and put investments, capital improvements into that domain name? No, because it could be pulled out from under you at any time, right? You're not going to invest in something where someone else can expropriate it. And that same psychology applies to decentralized media. We haven't yet fully baked that in, but once you totally own it, once you own your social profile, like you own your domain name, with something like an ENS profile, for example, you wouldn't be, um, you know, tour.com front slash, uh, your, your MA Kosloff, I forgot your username. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. You yeah. wouldn't be tour.com front slash MA Kosloff. You'd be tour.com front slash MA Kosloff.eth. You basically dock your profile in there and Twitter writes data to it and you can undock it and then dock it into another, you know, company's site and all the data is written in one spot, right? When that happens, suddenly you're like, wow, I've got property rights. I'm investing in this. The followers I accumulate on Twitter are adding to the same followers I'm accumulating on Instagram and the same followers on, on Pinterest and so on. Whoa. First of all, I've got portability. I've got much more, right? So this entire generation of social networks is going to get swapped out if they don't support that. The other thing is, um, you know, with Twitter, with LinkedIn, with Facebook, Google, the accounts, when you log into a site, guess what you don't have? A balance, right? You don't have a spendable balance. Oh, Yes. Right. That's like the, actually insane that we're 20 years into the internet. And when you log in, the only thing they've got is like some email contact info. There's no spendable balance there. So crypto basically destroys all login systems because you've got a spendable balance. Logging in with Ethereum, you can single sign on to every DeFi app today. And you've got a spendable balance and an identity right there. It's better than Google login and Facebook login, et cetera. So it's going to dominate that. Can you help me understand something? Because I know we got on this, but I could, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, you know, I, I could entirely understand the world you're describing. Why is it that established social players, especially the ones you're more bullish on, Facebook and Twitter, why can't they disrupt themselves to embrace this model? Right. That's, because if you're giving the example of why could Kodak invent the digital camera? yet not actually move forward in it. There's all these different reasons, innovative dilemma stuff. So what what is the, once again, this is a very coherent worldview. This isn't going to confuse anyone. Why won't it be done? Because there's usually a reason for any of those dynamics. Lots, lots of reasons. But the fundamental reason is self-disruption is super hard because it means literally giving up money today for an uncertain tomorrow. And so you'll probably have to terminate executives. Uh, just as an example, right? Think about all the newspapers that still have 
dead tree, right? They still have paper mills. They still have lumber contracts and ink contracts and, and so on and so forth. Those executives will fight for their professional careers, right? They will wild out. They will cry. They will make every possible argument in the world because it's extremely difficult to get a man to understand something when his livelihood depends upon not understanding it, right? Now, the very, very, very best of them are so skilled that they can self-disrupt themselves, but at least some people within the organization won't, right? So now you've got this huge paper products division with a thousand people, and you've got one, you know, crazy tech bro over here saying it's all going to go online. Let's disrupt our paper products division in the year 2000, right? So humans good being, good luck, right? Exactly. Humans being humans, you have one voice over here and you have a thousand people with their jobs and their careers and their sense of self. And, you know, they'll do stupid shit like bringing in, here's the first lumber that we cut in a new farm. You sure you want to cut this down? We've had 30 years of tradition. You know, I can talk about this transition because it's it's actually, what's funny is it's still ongoing, yet also in our past, you know? Yeah. Like, let's say there's still companies that are printing physical newsprint, um, but it's clearly, you know, declining and it'll be like vinyl or something, you know? Um, I'm not saying printing out, by the way, isn't useful. I actually do still print things out to read them because I do feel you get more focus in reading them. Um, but it's something where just quick, go ahead. When just quick thing, cause, and I don't know what the social, but what's fascinating though, is that another thing, cause I'm obsessed with the media context, which is print is still making you a lot of money in these cons. So it's not just that there's this very, so it's not just that, you know, it's like, no, like right now, if you're a local paper, there is a 81 year old who is still subscribed. So that right there. There's just, I just like the way you're describing this because there are just so many blockers to just doing it, despite me framing this as well. If it's obvious, why doesn't everyone just do it? Yeah. Um, but you just, it just rolls off the tongue how many different things would run into that. Yeah. Another good example, a very public example, was Netflix's shift away from DVDs to streaming, right? So they knew from the beginning that eventually streaming was going to be the future, but the bandwidth wasn't there for it. You know, so that's why they did a bandwidth constrained way of sending movies over the internet, which was literally you put in your mailing address, they mail it to you, right? And that was what they did for basically a better part of a decade until bandwidth improved and whatnot. And then they started doing streaming and um, they had this thing called Quickster where they tried to factor out their declining DVD by mail business. I don't know if you remember this in the early 2010s. I'm old. I, I'm, I am, I'm, I'm smiling. Once again, audio only for most people, but I'm smiling because I'm just old enough to remember the Quickster disaster. The Quickster disaster. That's right. So they tried to essentially transition all their DVD by mail people to a separate thing called Quickster, tried to factor out their, you know, subscription things into two separate things, you know? And, um, so you pay for it, you paid for streaming and you would pay for DVD by mail, correct? Was that it? Yeah, I don't remember the exact details, but they basically, they, they, they were trying to do something that made sense for them from a business standpoint, but evidently didn't make sense from a PR or a, or a, or a customer experience standpoint. Now I've got two accounts, my old account doesn't work, uh, blah, blah. And so it was a huge disaster. Netflix's stock dropped, everybody yelled at Reed Hastings and so on. Even though directionally he was right, that this was a declining business, there was the old business and so on. The issue is that when you make that lily pad hop, there's never the right time to make it. It's either too early or it's too late. That's the nature of exponentials. That's why it's hard. 
if it's too early, you're pissing people off who are like, what are you talking about? Even if this does happen, it's not going to happen for years. You're going to see the decline in the stock price, decline in revenue today. People are going to mark you down because you just destroyed your existing business for some speculative new one. You're making an investment in the future that may not actually transpire the way you think it does, by the way. It's like an angel investment. You, even if you're sure about it, the market isn't yet. That's why there's arbitrage, right? So you just destroyed an existing working part of your business You've fired executives, you or, or even if the executives will repurpose themselves, not all of their organization will. You don't need lumberjacks anymore if you're moving to digital. You need engineers. So someone's getting fired, and those people are really mad, uh, and they hate you, um, and you're evil, whatever, right? Uh, even if you're trying to make this decision for the best, you know, um, you know, or Netflix, the mailroom people, you, know, you don't need them in the same way anymore if you're moving over to streaming. So. So something has to get shuttered. Warehouses need to get shuttered. Real estate contracts need to get canceled. Those guys are mad at you because they had a five-year contract. You're trying to switch over in three years. There's so many details associated with something like this. It's like shifting from like army to navy, you know? Like, yeah, maybe you're still shooting people, but it's like very, very different theater of war, you know? Um, and so it's either too early or it's too late. And the commander is already bigger than you. It's already in the market. It's already got the talent. It's got the brand. The, the consensus is it's kicked your ass. Nobody would want to join you. They're on the exponential up and it's Instagram Kodak, you know? So quick thing, well, because what, so this would be, let's put aside all various degrees of beef with the New York Times. They are an interesting case study with this in that in 2006, they put up a paywall and it didn't work because at that point, they didn't design it quite the right way. No one wanted to pay for op-eds. It had to be the whole bundle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it didn't work. But then they then revisited it to their own success. So I'm just curious how you as a as a founder, as a thinker in this space, when folks do something too early and it doesn't work, what is it that enables them to come back and revisit? So what is it, once again, ideology aside, that gets the New York Times able to say, hey, we realized we had this disaster five years ago. We were just too early. We need to go all in on this. How do you just, how do you think about that? It's often a leadership change of some kind because that old leader is often discredited, but you know, then institutional memory fades and there's, you know, you usually have, there's a slide in any slide deck, VC deck, which is what is the new information, right? The new information is five years ago, like for example, in crypto, five years ago, uh, I mean, five years is an insane amount of time in, in crypto, right? Five years ago, Ethereum was... <laughs> was a billion dollars, right? And today it's like whatever hundred billion dollars, you know? That's a hundred X difference. Okay, revisit, you know? If you can give some quantifiable difference where something didn't work and now it does, that's totally legitimate, right? This is the why now question in any VC, you know, startup deck. So we just, we had gone through um, software is, uh, is, is eating the world, Anderson's essay. Then my talks, Silicon Valley's ultimate exit and software's reorganizing the world, which basically talked about how tech was going to be under attack and we had to migrate and so on and so forth. Now, eight years later, the big differences are, A, Silicon Valley itself doesn't exist in the same way. We have now decentralized. We have exited. Silicon Valley's ultimate exit has happened. And the thing that I wouldn't have predicted there, or thing that's surprising or interesting to me, is that we had a cleavage between the centralists and decentralists on um, in tech, but also in media. So we now have, you know, in many ways, Silicon Valley and the New York Times and the East Coast establishment are increasingly on the same side, but we have the crypto people and we have 
the individual substackers and influencers and so on on our side. So we have better creators and better technology and they have better distribution and the existing institutions, you know, I think I'll, I'll still go with us over the longer term. I think that's going to win, you know, but um, I think it's going to be like a serious, you know, slugfest between the centralist and decentralist between existing distribution and innovation. Um, so new aspects, what, what has enabled some of this stuff to happen in 2021? Well, remote, you know, crypto, um, the, and also the complete collapse of San Francisco, right? So it wasn't just something where it was fine. It was something that, you know, every single day, there's another murder, rape, assault, like just, just Gotham City type activity there in this incredibly expensive place where it's just dangerous, you know, it's just a dangerous, dangerous place. And, you know, that's not like a romantic thing. You, you don't get any, it's not like dangerous in the sense of like some adventure where you're fighting with your sword and shield. It's dangerous in the sense of, you know, you're walking with like your girlfriend or whatever, and some crazy person just throws a rock at someone's head and injures them. And there's no win out of that. There's no like warning from that. It's just like a random day and your life is, you know, maybe, maybe you, you lose an ear or something, you know, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And it's just reported as like injury or something. And it's like a life, you know, life-changing event, right? Even if you're not permanently injured, it's like, whoa, I, I can't even walk down the street without like having my head on a swivel, like the green zone. And, um, and especially given the expense of it, it wasn't worth it. And so essentially like a rubber band where there was all this investment in the city and then the city was absolutely horrible suddenly the investment in the city just completely went away and like, whoosh, it was like a rubber band because everyone's remote, right? And when everybody collectively exited at the same time, thanks to COVID and thanks to essentially the tragedy of the commons, which, which by the way, was sort of inevitable in the sense that when you have an incompetent centralized state, it can't stop a pandemic. It can't stop a fire. It can't stop a power outage, right? It can't stop people, you know, pooping on the street or smashing your windows. It can't use its inherent advantage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. It is not capable of maintaining order. So, you know, the broken windows thing is true in the sense of small symptoms of disorder are, a, are they prefigure more disorder to come. And uh, so this is a completely obvious kind of thing. We just have to relearn by living through it, you know? And so when you see like a super wealthy city that has like poop and needles on the street and people dying from overdoses outside that can't seem to get it under control. And there's a thousand excuses for this. Well, it's not that surprising that it then has power outages and fires and riots and, you know, it, it you know, housing prices out of control. It can't make the right trade-offs because its leaders are not selected for being good capital allocators. Um, they're not good at making the right trade-offs and saying, okay, here's a budget, do X, do Y, do Z. They can't make hard decisions. They're selected for popularity. And the thing about this, by the way, is if you have really poor capital allocators, it doesn't matter how rich your society is, it's going to become poor. Because you spend a billion dollars on a Caltrain that takes whatever years to you know, get ready, and the Chinese can do it in, you know, I don't know if you saw that video I pasted where they built a subway station in nine hours. Yeah. You know, and it's taking like what two years or three years in the US. You're talking like a thousand X difference, you know, like when you're talking about less than a day versus more than a year, you know, eight hours versus like, you know, three or six days, like a thousand X. You're not, so you're not talking about like two X, you're talking about a thousand X, you know? So when you're a thousand X different in capital allocation efficiency, your rich society will become poor and that poor society will become rich. And so, so that basically 
that issue drove people out because it became just infeasible to live there and with remote and everybody leaving at the same time, the last obligate ties to the land were cut. Yeah. And so now, by the way, now we are a nomadic people, right? Like we've achieved our destiny of where the fundamental social network. The other thing is this is underappreciated, but social networks also contribute to this as well. You know why? Because social networks and messaging apps, you know, the, the question, where are you, is actually an extremely modern question. You wouldn't hear that too much in, I don't know, the year 1700. Where are you? I'm across the table from you, dog. You know, like you didn't have a phone call then, right? Maybe you'd write it in a letter once in a while, but even then you address the letter. <laughs> yeah. You know, a letter, you would, you would, you would um, basically, uh, you would address it to somebody at an address so you knew where they were. You know, you might yell, where are you to somebody in a house? Cause you didn't know like what room they were in or something like that. But the frequency of the question, where are you has probably increased a thousand X, you know, especially the last 20 or 30 years with electronic. That's fascinating. I'd never, it's totally, once again, it's in the category where it's obvious once you hear it, but you've never conceptualized what that question means at a more meta level. That's right. It means that you can communicate with somebody and their location is an afterthought. And that means it's not just about a location-based app, but it's making location completely irrelevant. This is something I said back in 2013. Go ahead. And this, well, this is the key thing, which is that this is how the order you lay out. So companies, protocols, crypto, startup, startup cities, network state. Yep. What this is leading to is geography and that dynamic not mattering as much if you're spending i think i think one of your pieces you made the reference to if you're spending your time online and you're not actually oh i love i love i'm gonna this because i love this phrasing bowling alone posting together right as 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 just a really great articulation of just the dynamic you're describing. So I'd love for you to just like explain that part of it to people. Sure. Because it hits everything you're hitting here. Sure. Yeah. So, so there was a famous book called Bowling Alone that came out in, I think, you know, 2000 or 2001 by Robert Putnam, uh, I believe a Harvard sociologist who essentially mm -hmm. observed that all these measures of community had gone away from the Elks Club, you know, like Boy Scouts, Darts American Revolution, all this stuff, right? All these communities. Bowling leagues. Bowling leagues. The actual title. That's right. Bowling leagues, labor unions, you know, left and right wing and centrist and apolitical and youth, whatever. All these organizations have gone away, replaced essentially by people interacting with the state and the market, you know, though he didn't phrase it initially quite that way. You know, so they do elections and they'd buy stuff. They were consumers. They're sort of atomized consumers. They didn't have social associations. And, um, there's many arguments as to why this happened. Some would call it the atomizing effects of the market. Some would say that the state regulations prohibited that from happening. Like for example, I, you know, I linked to Hacker House where um, you know, they just made it really expensive to run like a small hacker house, you know, just regulated that into oblivion. But where can you cheaply set up community? You can do it online. So all these communities manifested online, bowling alone, but posting together online fora and Facebook groups and you know, um, Twitter and so on and so forth. Uh, has resulted in communications channels. And so now this is a critical thing. Social networks and messaging apps led to the formation of communities that were geography independent, where you can keep up an ongoing chat with people and you might be at the office, you might be like, oh yeah, I'm in New York now. And frankly, that's just something that your interlocutor doesn't actually even need to know. I mean, sure, it's like they might say, hey, how, how are you doing? Where are you today? Whatever. But 95% of the time, that's not something that 
that either party actually needs to share to have the conversation. You know, it's the same person, they still got the same context. So that cut ties to the land as well. And in fact, I've got an article from 2013 in my like startup class on this, you know, mobile is making us more mobile, where essentially I've talked about how everything we're doing in tech, cloud and mobile and crypto and VR and so on, everything that you can put in the cloud cuts another tie to the land. For just as an example, your bookshelf back there, putting that into Kindle cuts a tie to the land. Your weight is reduced. Boom, it's all online, right? Your crypto cuts a tie to the bank. Gmail, you don't need your post office and so on and so forth. Every single piece of the 20th century built environment where you'd be fixed to the land is getting digitized. And 2020 cut some of the last and most important parts, which were like the really high dollar value sales. Those can now all be done over Zoom because society shifted, right? That cultural thing required this huge level of force. Society shifted over. Now you can do big deals over Zoom. You can do conferences over Zoom. It's no longer considered something where you're careless if you meet in person, or rather, it used to be something where you didn't care if you didn't get on a plane. And now, if you really care about their health, you will do it over Zoom because there's COVID, there's, you know, there's airplane closures, maybe might not be vaccinated, whatever, whatever, you know. And COVID, by the way, might last 10 years in some way with different mutants and so on arising. We'll see. You know, I haven't tweeted about this because it's too depressing in some ways for people to process, but I think no one was prepared for 10 years of Iraq. I don't think anybody's prepared for 10 years of COVID. And it's a possibility, I don't say it's 100%, but it's a possibility that more variants just keep arising that have progressively more immunity to vaccines and you have to keep getting a booster every six months or year and they keep being shutdowns and lockdowns and so on and so forth. And until we basically get to a, a transformation in biomedicine, you know, UDA over FDA, where the UDA loop is faster than the regulatory process. We can just knock out these vaccines in like two days, you know, and ship them. Something like that, I think, is going to be necessary, a real revolution in biomedicine in order to truly lick the thing once and for all. Well, yeah, and because we should actually crescendo sure. with this because it's, it's set up. How do all of the trends you're discussing here, right? So crypto, the formation of online communities, the existence of these... I'd say we're at the startup city phase. We're not quite at the network, network yep. union state. How do all these things come together to produce the network state, right? So it'd be great if you actually just to define the network state. Sure. Um, I'll do that in the introduction, but you will articulate it far better than I will. How does everything we described culminate in a network state? Great question. So, you know, as I mentioned, like the concept of exit and using the internet to build alternatives, right? So first you build alternatives to companies, then we built alternatives to currencies and protocols. Now we're building alternatives to cities, startup cities. And soon we build alternatives to states. And the very first question everybody says, okay, well, you're gonna build a new country. What are you, some lunatic who's gonna, where are you gonna get the land, loser? You know, where's the military gonna come from? Ha ha ha, what a, what a lunatic, right? You've clearly been asked these questions. I'm just appreciating that part. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like basically everybody, that's the first thing they'll say. Like, are you just lunatic who wants to go and sit up on an oil rig and declare yourself king of nothing, you know, these micronations, these eccentrics, you know, whatever, right? And essentially, you know, it's empty on how to start a new country. I kind of go through this, but there's there's three obvious ways to start a new country, which are election, revolution, and war, you know? Uh, and those are obvious and they're obvious and that's why they're 
very contested and political and necessarily, right? And there's three non-obvious ways where like unconventional ways, which are the micronation approach, like find some oil rig or unclaimed patch of land, declare yourself king of nothing. There's uh, seasteading and there's space, you know? And those are, you know, clever, but basically have in different ways been non-starters. Space is the most prestigious of those because people know space travel is possible. Space was pushed by the powers that be, you know, by the US and USSR. It's something that there's been a lot of positive movies about. So people think of that as the coolest way to start a new country and maybe not crazy, like in the sense of impossible, only because institutions have endorsed it. However, it's technologically infeasible currently. We can't do interstellar, you know, colonization, right? So my seventh method is what I call a cloud country. And uh, the idea is essentially to um, organize people online and start with a critical observation that a network of enclaves can grow to have the population and territory and GDP of an existing state. So first, let me just define what an enclave is, right? Um, an enclave, it's like a piece of territory that is surrounded by another state, okay? Now, they used to be much more common but with the, the rise of centralized states, uh, it became something that was unusual to have like a landlocked country because they'd have to pay tribute to the things surrounding it to go anywhere. So might as well just become part of that country, right? Some of them still exist, but enclaves as a rule don't, don't exist that much or they're not that frequent. There's some like Kaliningrad, which have like Russia as a sponsor. That's maybe not a true enclave because it's got like, I think some sea border, but, but basically, uh, you know, this, this idea of territory that is fully surrounded by another state is um, that's an enclave. Now, notice that I say land, right? Because if it's got, if it borders the ocean even a little bit, that's critical because the ocean was the first peer-to-peer -peer network. If you if you have a port, right? Then you know Portugal, for example, has a port. So even though like Spain kind of closes it off from the rest of Europe, it can it doesn't have to go through Spain to get to Brazil or to Macau. It has a peer-to-peer -peer network called the ocean where it can get its ships everywhere, right? And uh, so the ocean was the first peer-to-peer -peer network, which is a really way, interesting way of thinking about it. And it had, you know, the law of the sea, which is still, you know, operative, which defines how ships interact when they crash into each other or have conflict in international waters, right? That's still operative. Um, and that's kind of like, if you think about it, that, that demilitarized zone, that decentralized zone is like the internet and the equivalent of the law of the sea is like blockchains, Right, where there's different oceans. You know, there's just like the Black Sea and the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. You have the Bitcoin network and the Ethereum network and this network, and there's laws that govern them. Now, the analogy somewhat breaks down because those laws of the sea can be rewritten by people. And rather than one global law of the sea, there's like, you know, multiple of them. But conceptually, yeah, right. Conceptually, the key thing is now an enclave, a physical piece of land, can be connected all around the world and trade with them and send digital goods to them and have encrypted communications channels to them through the internet. And with Starlink or things like that, it gets internet from above. So the value of an enclave has risen a lot. And this hasn't been priced in, right? So what you can do is you can start with a community online of 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 people that folds in a tree into a leader that has a blockchain to, to manage the communications and transactions, 
that has a daily call to action. So they're doing something, right? They're helping a member get a job. They are, you know, um, watching a movie together. They are, you know, uh, like crowd crowdsourcing something. They're crowdfunding something. They're defending somebody online. They've got a daily call to action where the leaders are sort of propagating up, and then they've got the sort of networking union leaders, you know, there, right? So this this is a community, a digital community that gives you goods, but also makes demands on you for participating. It's a level up from simply like an online Game of Thrones fan group or something. It's making demands upon you, but it's also giving you utility, right? And everybody's stuck at home all the time, thanks to COVID or what have you, or on their phones. This is the kind of thing that people are seeking out, right? It's like the return of secret societies or, you know, like, like the Masons in some sense, but it's also the return of uh, the the um, civil civil uh, society that Robert Putnam talked about, right? So you have this network union and it grows and grows and grows. And then it starts maybe selling flags. And so what I'd said earlier about Facebook putting up flags, all these people in individual apartments or cul-de-sacs, they start going and taking over hacker houses or ranches or, you know, 10 houses together on a street somewhere or a farm, right? And they start collimating 10 people here, 20 people here, 50 people here, 100 people here. And they're part of this network union that has a footprint, little dots all over the world, right? Now, there's a precedent for this, which are like the Google offices, the Facebook offices, any multinational tech company. When you walk into a Google office anywhere, you've got a badge, beep, and you're in a piece of Google. It's got the Google logo. It's got the Google foosballs and the coloring and the branding. You're in a piece of Google anywhere, right? That is applied currently to commercial real estate. We can apply that with the network union concept to residential real estate as well. Okay, so you start building a footprint here where you're raising this flag of this network state everywhere. And the great thing about it is at first it's just a LARP. Everyone's like, look at these freaking losers. They think that they are part of some country. What a joke, ha, 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 which is great. Let them laugh, I love it, right? Because they laughed at crypto initially. What they don't understand is that just like crypto got LARPed into something, and the reason it got LARPed was that the people weren't just imagining something. They also had the cryptographic foundation on which when they built, they could still hold their wealth, right? Mm -hmm. This LARP doesn't just LARP it's like you're building a, a city in VR, right? You've got a communications network and a transaction network that's in a cryptocurrency. You can crowdfund social goods together. You have an organization and a community. You generate art and literature. You like crowdfund that. You have bards, you know, you have musicians, you have movie makers and so on. Because, you know, culture is very important, right? There's very few cultures where the first thing you think about is their stock market. You know, when you think about the culture of France, you think about the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower, you know, yep. and and like the music, the literature, the art. That's why the NFT stuff, by the way, is very important here because artists are now going crypto, right? Musicians, athletes, and so on are going crypto. So these folks are ones that you want in your community as well because you can sort of score them on the basis of their, you know, it's, it sounds like a little bit uh, numerical, but you can evaluate on their basis of ability to attract other citizens, right? High quality citizens, yeah. great artists, you want to fund their art because they inspire people to join your proto network state, right? And then you have a dashboard, just like you have coinmarketcap.com, which is looking at the dashboard and these cryptocurrencies. You have nation real estate pop, which is saying, okay, we've got a thousand people and we've got 10,000 acres total footprint across the world. And we've got this GDP. Okay, next year we want to get to 2,000. Next year, 4,000, 8,000, 16,000, 32,000. Eventually, you start. Basically, you're building up these undeniable numerical measures on the internet, right? Because it's number of people, it's GDP, it's footprint. It's, 
it's all these people making individually completely legal commercial transactions for real estate around the world, completely legal crowdfunding deals. Uh, you know, the only thing is they're just laughed at because they think of themselves as being effectively dual citizens of this country that is yet to exist. Okay. Now, do you know what the best precedent for this is? Israel, which started with Herzl's book in 1896, Der, Der And essentially people LARP the country into reality and a lot of them bought land in Palestine and so on. There are other options, other places where people thought about founding you know, the, 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 the Jewish state. Um, people thought about South America or Madagascar. There are various things that were floated around by different kinds of people, if I, if I recall correctly. Um, now, of course, the Holy Land was picked because it had some religious significance. And that's like all kinds of conflict, whatever that persists to the present day. Ideally, whatever piece of land is picked here, the critical thing about the network state is its capital is in VR, right? Its capital is digital. Remember, we talked earlier about how 80%, whatever, of your life is in the matrix. With the capital in VR, it can never be invaded. Right? With the capital in VR, you have presence everywhere in the world, right? Eventually, it's mm -hmm. on-chain. Eventually, you need the cryptographic keys. You can contribute to it. You can build a building. You can build a whole labyrinth, and you can be in there. Now, today, again, you know what we have is interfaces that are just like, you know, goggles or whatever. Tomorrow we might have Neuralink. The hard thing is not in my view gonna be reading data from the brain, it's gonna be writing data to the brain because our brain isn't being engineered to have data written to it. So I don't know exactly if that's even gonna be possible. Okay, call that a huge technical question mark. Um, but what I, what I do think is that if your capital's in VR and you have just projections everywhere, a good analogy, have you ever seen the map of like Indonesia? As in like, because there's like a bunch of islands, right? It's like a very, yeah. That's right. But we have a social construct which says these islands are all separated by water and yet they're part of the same country. Everybody there thinks of themselves as part of the same country, despite being separated by bodies of water where there's nobody in between. Now think of that as not being a bunch of islands, but a bunch of individual enclaves around the world connected by the internet. Okay, so here's here are the two obvious questions as we're, we're nearing the end here. Sure. One, I get crypto, right? I, I get why you'd want to use crypto. I get why if you're an SF, you'd want to exit and go to Miami or Austin, wherever. Why are the folks who you're interested in speaking to through 1729, through the book, through everything, why do they want to start a new country? Because it seems like what we're scaling up to there was this huge narrative jump. If you're listening to the podcast, we're talking about Netflix and the New York Times, new country. Yep. Where is the where is the impetus for most people coming from? So it's the same. It's a great question, but it's um, why do you want a blank sheet of paper? Why do you want like a new Google Doc? Why do you want a new company? Why do you want a bare piece of land? Right. And the answer is a clean slate where you can build from scratch. Right. Everything, like imagine if, you know, I've mentioned this in my essay, but imagine if every essay had to start with taking somebody else's essay and arguing with them about what pieces to delete and what pieces to add. Yeah, that's, that's a huge pain, right? You just want to be able yeah. to start something from scratch, maybe throw it away, maybe it's awesome, but it's yours. It's a blank piece of paper, right? It's a blank text buffer. It's a new company. It's a new piece of land. You can build a house from scratch. And you know, we saw what the ability to build from scratch can do in currencies. This massive innovation, multi-trillion dollar thing that is crypto, you know, has just reinvented Wall Street. It's reinvented 
um, the Fed and everything, you know, because we figured out a way to build from scratch, right? It can, it can be very non-obvious, by the way, to figure out that zero to one, you know, domain names were non-obvious, crypto is very non-obvious. And this is a non-obvious thing. How do you, how do you innovate on countries? Because it's the most important thing in the world, you know, in the sense of, you know, how do you, how do you innovate on regulatory policy so that you have, um, you know, new biomedical policy? How do you get to nuclear energy? How do you get to supersonic aircraft? How do you get to, um, you know, transportation like self-driving cars? How do you innovate on subways? All of that, the reason we can't innovate in the physical world, the reason we're only able to innovate digitally, I mean, if you think about it, you can build a billion dollar startup from your computer, but you can't build a shed in San Francisco without a billion permits, right? So, mm. so that's crazy, actually. On the computer, I can edit anything. I can literally change the lives of a million people with one keystroke and set up and tear something down. Everybody's opted in. It's totally volitional. You know what I mean? Um, but I can't affect the life of one person myself in San Francisco by like adding a, adding a shed to my backyard without all these people interrupting it. Right. So it's, whereas you have this huge leverage in the cloud, you don't on land. Why don't you have it on land? Because the people who are physically surrounding you are not ideologically aligned with you. They don't have the same risk tolerance and reward alignment. They don't share your culture. They don't share your values. This is actually not a functional city or community. You don't know these neighbors and they don't trust you and they're not economically aligned, right? It's not actually a country anymore. You know, it was at some point, but it's not like a group of people who have shared values that agree on law. It's just a bunch of folks under some, you know, like who just fold into the state in the market. You know, they're, they're under the gun and they're, they can transact with each other, but they don't have common alignment. They don't have common goals and values. So what's going to happen is we use the internet to find those people with common values. We sort them. And now once you've got a thousand people in a jurisdiction and they're in the middle of Iowa or Nebraska and they all love self-driving cars and they have opted in to take the risk of self-driving cars, okay, they just ban all normal cars from the street. You've got 99% agreement. It's all self-driving mm -hmm. there, right? Suddenly you form the pocket of the future. There's enough alignment among people that you don't need a billion permits to build the shed anymore, right? They have simply opted out of the 20th century and opted into the 21st. And there might be a risk, but guess what? Everybody has taken that risk in the same way that, you know, the reason we have planes is that there were test pilots, right? The reason we have medicines is that there were people who volunteered at first, right? That, that kind of risk is, you know, why do we have space shuttles? You know, there's just brave astronauts volunteer, right? Um, that kind of risk is the kind of risk which we should celebrate and we should laud and we should reward societally. It's much more societally beneficial than bungee jumping or skydiving or even going and shooting shooting somebody in the Middle East, you know, like it's something where we, there's other ways in society that, you know, you can, you can do euthanasia, right? You can do, um, you can go jump off a bridge. There's no law against that, but somehow you can't take risks that could benefit you and society more broadly. So getting a bunch of people who all agree on something in one spot is way, 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 way more powerful than people think. And we've seen how powerful that is when it's 10 people for a startup. But if it's 1,000 or 10,000 people or 100,000 people or a million people for a startup city or a network state, we're going to see some really amazing things. So here is the last and also most obvious question. Going back to the tech companies, crypto startup cities, in all three of these examples, there's so much FOMO 
in every single one. Everyone wishes they were in the dorm room with Mark and Co. Everyone wishes they used TikTok a little earlier. Yep. You wish you were the second dude who followed Keith Raboy to Miami. Sure. Everyone, including myself, wishes we bought crypto uh, way earlier in the 2010s. If your thought is that the 2030s are going to be about the network state, what would you recommend or what would you say the equivalent of moving to Miami the day after the How Can I Help tweet goes out, the week after Great Facebook question. is founded, and then the second that it's Individual easy action. enough for a normal person to buy crypto? What is the equivalent this year for the network state? Great question. So it's startup cities. Um, and it's basically investing in and contributing to that, like Prospera and Cul-de-Sac and Starbase and Pronomos and Mikwashi and, and stuff like that. Gift City, like basically um, this, you know, uh, the list of startup cities, um, whether you can buy equity in them or buy real estate in them or move to them, that is basically, those are the cryptos of this decade. You know, because they will innovate at a minimum on the local governance things like self-driving cars and robot hotels and, you know, like COVID, you know, like, like uh, containment and, and things like that, you know, um, food delivery, all of those local things that are not like federal, but that make a huge difference for quality of life. Even just the layout of the city, by the way, you know, for example, if you go west, uh, starting from like Greece and you go to the UK and then you go to Boston and you go to like California, you start seeing like buried telephone lines, right? Because the new cities were built with knowledge of the new technology, right? And then you go, mm -hmm. now, you know, the thing is we went so far West, we ran out of land. Okay. But now here's the thing. You go far enough West, you end up in the cloud. And Asia in some ways is like the new West because they've got cities that were built more recently, like Songdo in Korea. And you start having these smart cities that are built for the internet. And they're built differently. You have cities built around the self-driving car. They're going to look different. You have build, cities built for Uber, right? Built for Lyft built for delivery, built for robots, you know, sidewalk robots and so on. If you've seen those as little thingies that don't go fast, yeah. right? They just move on the sidewalk. It's a brilliant kind of form factor. Don't put them on the road, put them on the sidewalk and have them move slow and look like R2-D2 and they're cute, you know? You can't run them in San Francisco because some lunatic will start hitting them with a baseball bat, right? But you can use them in Asia, right? You can use them elsewhere. Um, and you can, you know, basically, uh, you know, in, in law abiding places, you can, you can use these things to significantly improve quality of life, right? Because it brings delivery costs way down and it, it's something where it can just come to your door. And in fact, in China already, they have hotels that will deliver things like Keurig cups and stuff like that to your door with these, you know, like hotel robots, right? So that type of stuff, buying real estate there, buying equity there, um, investing it. And most importantly, you know, the least obvious thing that is needed to support startup cities and, and network states is? I mean, like an actual community of people. Yes, but even upstream of that? Not going to get it. <laughs> media. Media, 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 uh, media, 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 media. People didn't really understand what I meant by this. But the reason is that seasteading, you know, and other things just got killed by all of these institutionalists. I mean, imagine relying on Barnes and Noble to tell you what they thought of Amazon right? Or Blockbuster to tell you what they thought of Netflix or, you know, the UK to tell you what they thought of the USA or, you know, like, like, uh, the fed to tell you what they thought about Bitcoin. You're just going to, it's an unreliable narrator. 
you know, you're just going to hear this stupid negative narrative that stresses the faults uh, without understanding what's really good. You know, Kodak for a long time, a lot of people didn't understand why digital cameras, you know, or why the, the smartphone would dominate. And the reason was, yeah, the photos were worse and so on for a while, but the phone was free or the camera was free. It came with the phone and it was ubiquitous and it was internet connected. And it was 10X on these other dimensions, even if it was one tenth on some dimensions, right? An institution can't value that. Like the FDA, for example, can't value speed. It only thinks it can value quality. It sucks at actually at even doing that, but basically it thinks, okay, it doesn't matter if it takes two years if the quality is 1% better. Actually, it really does. It, it kills a lot more people. Um, with crypto, for example, people are like, oh, it's a slow database. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's a slow database. It's slower than a, than a centralized database, but it supports a million simultaneous root users. Everybody's a root user of Bitcoin. There's no one person who has admin rights that can deplatform anybody else. So yeah, I went down in transactions, but I went way up in terms of number of simultaneous root users, right? So the institutions are usually blind to the dimensions they don't value. My friend Sri Ram Krishnan had a good post on this, which is uh, optimize something they can't measure, right? Which they don't measure. You know, for example, you're building a competitor to Facebook, don't optimize DAUs. They're set up like a tank to go after that. You want to optimize something totally different, like maybe dollars per minute made or some hedonic measure of like how happy they are or their fitness, you know, like their physical fitness, some metric that they don't optimize so that they're just simply not built for that. And, and then you're actually competing on a Z axis that they're not competing on, right? So, the thing is that we absolutely, like the defense department of these crypto protocols, these startup cities, these network states, and frankly, these tech companies is our own media outlets. In the same way that Bloomberg isn't Bloomberg without Bloomberg. In the same way that all of these sort of East Coast science, you know, it's, it's like super obvious when you put this filter on it, but you don't ever see investigative reports on the owners of East Coast media companies. You know, whether it is, you know, professional courtesy, whether the employees of those companies are just aware that that's a career limiting move. You know, our Condé Nast is investigating the new houses. Nobody at the Wall Street Journal is investigating Murdoch. Nobody at the NYT is investigating the uh, Ox Salzberger family. Nobody at BuzzFeed is going after Peretti, whatever. Like, that's obviously not something that you, they would do. And it's not so much that these owners get create coverage, they get no coverage. You know, but all the guns are pointed out. Everybody's being held accountable other than those legacy media corporations. And so they'll be shooting at these startup cities and these network states and these crypto protocols and these tech companies, of course, which they've done. And unless you actually have your own media arm, you're not going to win that information conflict, right? You have to state your own case and it can't just be fully responsive. You have to basically be like, guess what? Because the FDA, for example, held back COVID testing, that's why we had the COVID epidemic. They, they didn't allow emergency use authorization because they pathologized Johnson & Johnson's tiny percentage of issues and made that into this huge deal. It cut off all this vaccination momentum. They're probably responsible for whatever thousand more people dying you know, because they're making the wrong type one versus type two error trade-off. Because we have an accelerated self-driving cars, we have whatever 50,000 car deaths per year. right? Because we haven't accelerated nuclear energy, um, that's why we still have all this pollution and fossil fuels And Asia is basically saying, no, thank you. We don't want to be poor. Uh, we don't want to cut off our economies and have Europe just, you know, freeze in place as being wealthier than us. So because we didn't need nuclear energy, we haven't stopped climate. So those kinds of things where you're pushing on a Z axis, you're basically saying, look, I actually agree on some of the problems, but as a technological progressive, I want to address them with technology as opposed to trying this mud wrestle political process, which is zero sum and somebody wins and somebody loses. 
you know, and that's a reason that we need our own media. We need to build startup cities, we need to build network states, we need to show a solution as possible. And the same way that Satoshi showed that the way to reform the banks was not to ban all their competition entirely, which is basically what Dodd-Frank did, but rather build a genuine alternative. So, so apology, where should, I mean, it's in the name, 1729, but where should folks go to learn more about your project? You're obviously on Twitter, all these different things. Yeah, so 1729.com is the newsletter to sign up to. It's a quote newsletter that pays you. I try to write as much book content as I can over the next few weeks and months. And when I'm done, right, um, then I'll package that actually into like a proper, not just book, but book app, right? Like, let's say, you know, I think a book is sort of a, you know, there's, there's a book, like a physical book, then there's like a Kindle, which is putting it online. And then there's what does a fundamentally digital version look like, which I think has widgets and mnemonics and, and so on in it, you know, like, um, imagine if the Bible didn't just have the Ten Commandments, but it had a call to action alongside each commandment and a social network for Christians built in, right? So, like that's kind of you know you, you have this this book out there, you have the content out there, you have people giving feedback. It's turned into a book app, and um, this network state book is you know then sort of like the foundation for building you know tech companies, crypto protocols, startup cities, and network states, uh, you know, culminating towards that. And just setting that out as a North Star, and there's lots of pieces in that vision, you know, like like the pseudonymous economy and how to enable why that's desirable, why that stops both discrimination and cancellation, why it's already happening with 400 million pseudonyms on Reddit, with crypto enabling pseudonymous transactions, and then what remains to be built, right? Or the win and help win ideology, right? Which is neither, you know, the progressive nor conservative nor libertarian, right? It's not just live and let live, it's not zero sum and it's not stay at home, but it's win and help win. It's ambitious, but it's positive sum. All of those kinds of things, building those loops and those hooks and so on into this as sort of an owner's manual or a directive, in a sense, it's kind of taking thesis antithesis synthesis. You know, you have um, the sort of highly directed, you know, monotasking founder, and then you have the venture capitalist who has lots of things coming in and, and funds some of them. And then basically setting out a vision, which a lot of companies would be aligned with, which has a, the aspect of directedness of a founder, but also the aspect of serendipity of an investor, where we want to fund all those things that are network state related. And this book provides a blueprint, and then we can fund those things. Very well said. Well, Balaji, thank you for diving into the deep end with us for this first episode. There is so much here. Definitely go and read the essays referenced. They will all be in the show notes. But this is really comprehensive, and I think this is really great. So thanks so much. Cool. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.